your calendar as well. As I said, uh, we're going to be in chapter 27. You get your Bibles ready. Chapter 27 of Matthew, we're going to start reading at verse 57. And then next week we will finish the book of Matthew. Then in two weeks, we're going to go into uh, Daniel's, the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel has been called the most interesting uh, book of the Bible. And I want to encourage you to not only come out, but invite somebody to come out as well for that Daniel study. What makes Daniel so powerful is it's very practical um, as we look at the person of Daniel. And then it's very prophetic as well. And if you want to get a good understanding of end-time prophecy, you have to have a good understanding of the book of Daniel. If you want a good understanding of the nations that will play a role in the end times, that includes Israel, then you have to have an understanding of the book of Daniel. It is called the forerunner to the book of Revelation. So as we come out, we're going to be going over all these things, and I think it's going to be very relevant and important for us, especially in the day in which we're in, because we're seeing a lot that is happening. There is perhaps a Russian invasion of Ukraine um, that is imminent. Um, they're still wondering what uh, Putin's going to do, but I don't think you amass 130,000 troops on a border uh, and all the equipment without an intention of invading. We know that Russia is mentioned in the last days, that they're not going to stop there that they will turn south and they will head towards Israel. The Bible is very clear about that. So I think it's important for us to have a good understanding of what the end time scenario says, what the Bible says about the nations that play a role. Daniel is going to be talking about those kingdoms from the time that he's on the scene to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So I think that it's going to be very, very uh, informative. It's going to be a blessing, very not just looking at the implications of it, but the application for us today, um, because Babylon is all around us, and how Daniel was able to stand firm um, in that time is is something that we're going to look at very carefully. So in two weeks, the book of Daniel, bring somebody, looking forward to it. It's going to be a great study. But this morning, we have this study before us. So Matthew chapter 27, if you have your Bibles, we'll begin reading at verse 57. As, Father, we come here this morning, and once again, this very familiar portion of Scripture that is before us, and, Lord, um, I pray that as we look at the burial of Jesus, we know that there's, um, this is an important part of the eternal plan that you have for us, Jesus' crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection, And Lord, I pray that as we look at these two individuals that played a role in the burial of Jesus, that you would touch our hearts. How they came out and they risked everything to take care of the body of Jesus. Lord, we live in a day and age where it it takes a lot of courage to come out to tell others that we are believers. But these two council members, as they saw what Jesus did for them, that they said, we don't care. We're going to ask for the body of Jesus. And Lord, as we see what Jesus did for us on that cross, the hope that is before us and the resurrection, that Lord, that we would come out and we would declare Christ crucified. And even though it may come at a cost with relationships or a position, whatever it might be, that Lord, that you have given us 
the boldness and the courage to declare you the hope of the world, the hope that the world needs to hear. I pray that we would be attentive right now, settled in our seats. Remember, ringers need to be off our phones. And Lord, to be attentive to the scriptures that are before us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So going through chapter 27, we have seen the incredible account of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. And he died for your sins specifically and individually. He died for my sins. When Paul was writing his second letter to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he said, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Matthew tells us as we went through the crucifixion of Jesus that there was darkness that covered the land for three hours. Luke was very specific in making sure that we understood that it was not just over all the land, it was over all the earth. And out of the darkness at that time that Jesus would cry out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the one who knew no sin was made to be sin for us, as all of our sins were placed upon him. The iniquity of us all, as Isaiah would declare in chapter 53 of his book. And then he would cry out, it is finished. It is finished. Te telestai is what he would say. And what I hope and really pray that it would be established in your heart and established in your faith that it is finished. You see, the old hymn says that Jesus paid it all. And we are here today, and we know that Jesus paid it all on that cross. He died for all of our sins. He did the work. He paid the price. Be established in that. He paid the price. It is finished. And as we read, the veil was rent in half, as Matthew tells us, at that time there in the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And as that veil was rent in half, I imagine it came crashing down and those priests could see into the Holy of Holies for the first time ever because, as we discussed last week, only the high priest was allowed to go into the presence of God, the tangible presence of God on the Day of Atonement to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of the nation and he had to do it year after year because those blood sacrifices of the animals and as he would do that on the day of atonement it was not enough it only covered sin until jesus on that cross would cry out it is finished he did the work and now we can come into his presence we have relationship with the father we have the hope of eternal life we have forgiveness of sin all because jesus went to the cross and he rose from the grave. And of course, the resurrection is the very foundation of our faith because we know that he validated what he did on the cross by rising from the grave, conquering sin and death. It is finished. Please be established in that. Rejoice in that. Enjoy the Father. Now we have the spirit of adoption that we can cry out, Abba, Father, as Paul would write in Romans and also in Galatians. Plus, John writes in his gospel, for those of us who believe, we be, have the right to become the children of God, to be called the children of God because of faith in him. You and I, we belong to the Lord, and we are forgiven people because it is finished. So rejoice in that and enjoy him. 
and come into his presence that we can come boldly into the Holy of Holies, as Hebrews chapter 10 says, because of the blood of Jesus Christ. It is done. And as we know that he paid the price for us and made atonement for our sins and your sins, now Jesus, as we come to our text here, his body is lifeless on that cross. We read in verse 57 of Matthew 27, Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. And this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in clean linen cloth, verse 60, and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. As we read now that Jesus on the cross, as he had bowed his head, that Joseph of Arimathea, and according to John's gospel, along with Nicodemus, they now enter into this scene. We don't know for sure if they were at the cross watching Jesus die for their sins. I just suspect that they were. And as Nicodemus would see Jesus up on that cross, no doubt he would think back to what Jesus said to him a couple years before this time that Jesus would say to Nicodemus, as Nicodemus came to him in John chapter 3 at night, and said, we know that you come from God because no one can do the things that you do unless God were with him. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, that Nicodemus, if one wants to enter into the kingdom of heaven, he must be born again. And Nicodemus, he's struggling with all of that, wasn't he? He's going, what do you mean, be born again? Can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? And Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I say to you, Nicodemus, that you must be born again. And just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And he would think about that time in the book of Numbers where the sin had come into the camp of Israel. The snakes were coming and biting the people. And Moses was told to put this brass serpent on a pole and put it up in the middle of camp. Whoever looked at it would be saved and would be healed. And we know that we are all bitten with the snake of sin, aren't we? And as Jesus' brass is a symbol of judgment, was on that cross, lifted up. He took the judgment for you and for me. And now as we come to him in faith, that we are healed that we have eternal life, forgiveness of sin. And Nicodemus no doubt would think back to the words of Jesus, for God so loved the world, there in John chapter 3, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We do know that these two religious men of Israel would experience the darkness because everybody in the world experienced the darkness. They would experience the earthquake there in Jerusalem that split the rocks. Both these men were members of the Sanhedrin Council. And I wonder if they had known at this time that the veil had been ripped from top to bottom there in the temple. Had the word begun to spread throughout, you know, the religious leaders and the priests, that the veil is rent in two. The veil has come down. We can see into the Holy of Holies. And these two men come before us in something that we need to stop and consider this morning. Their role in all of this in the epicenter of God's eternal plan for salvation. You see, the tendency for us is to forget about the burial of Jesus. We go right from the crucifixion of Jesus 
to the resurrection of Jesus. But the burial of Jesus is very, very important because it is the evidence and gives testimony, in fact, that Jesus was dead. When Paul was writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's writing about the resurrection. And he writes about the resurrection. It's the longest chapter in, in 1 Corinthians. And he's laying the fact that Jesus rose from the grave. You have the eyewitnesses. Paul said, I saw him. Cephas and the disciples saw him. There are 500 witnesses that saw him at one time. And Paul says, some of them are alive. You go and ask them. Go ask the witnesses. Now, if you had 500 witnesses who saw something at the same time, that's pretty strong evidence, isn't it? And that's what Paul is writing. There are 500 people at once that saw the resurrected Lord as he showed himself for 40 days after his resurrection. And Paul goes on to say that, that the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is the very foundation of our faith, isn't it? It validates that he died on the cross for our sins. And he writes that if he did not rise from the grave, then we're still in our sins. Our faith is futile. We have absolutely no hope. So the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, the very foundation of our faith, but Paul's making this case, and because Jesus rose from the grave, we have the hope of the resurrection. Now keep in mind, and we won't go into it today, it's a study for another time, that the resurrection is speaking not only of eternal life, but it's eternal life in one day, in the moment, he says, that we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the sound of the trump, that we will get new heavenly bodies. To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, but as our bodies are put into the ground at the time of the rapture of the church, we'll be resurrected and we'll get new heavenly bodies. So that's a study for another time. But Paul's making this case in that very important chapter about the resurrection. But he starts the chapter by saying this, that moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Listen, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So Paul here gives us the definition of the gospel. He says that Christ was crucified according to the scriptures. He was buried according to the scriptures. And he rose again from the dead according to the scriptures on the third day. And as we look at this, here Jesus, his body is hanging lifeless on that cross. His head laying on his chest. John tells us that he bowed his head when he gave up the ghost, when he gave up his spirit. His head bowed into his chest, which is interesting because that word bow is only used one other time in the New Testament. I believe it's where Jesus, when he heard that man come to him and say, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, really? You know, birds of the nest, you know, the foxes have holes, birds of the nest, you know, uh, birds have, of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Same word. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, bow his head. And here, the place where Jesus would bow his head was in his chest on that cross as he died for you and for me. The disciples have all fled. There is no mention of them being at the cross except for John, 
who was entrusted the care of Jesus' mother, Mary, to him, and they would eventually leave in the early hours of Jesus dying on the cross. But all the other disciples, there's no record of them being there at all. They are all hiding. They evidently had not made any preparations for the burial of Jesus, and I find that interesting. None of them even thought about that. We know from Matthew's narrative that six times before Jesus is crucified, he made reference to his death and burial and resurrection. He said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and elders. I'm going to be put to death, but I'm going to rise again after three days. And you would think they would be in the back of their minds, well, maybe we need to make preparations for Jesus' burial. But they didn't do that. They didn't understand what was going on. I mean, they didn't understand the night before this event here, his crucifixion, when Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples, they're coming in, and one of the Gospels tell us they're arguing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And then Jesus really begins to talk about some heavy things with them. I'm going to go away, and you can't come. And they're going, where where are you going? What do you mean? I'm not going to leave you as orphans. The Holy Spirit's going to come. The Comforter, he's going to come. He's going to come and be in you and with you. So all this was going on, but they didn't think about the burial of Jesus. They didn't come to Jerusalem understanding all that was going to happen, even though Jesus spoke of it. So they are all gone, the ones who had followed him for over three years. But as we are told that Jesus was buried according to the scriptures, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. It was really God the Father that had made preparations for his burial. You see, in our society and in our culture, when someone passes away, there are arrangements made for a burial, isn't there? Or a cremation. It's a foregone conclusion that everyone goes through that process. But here at this time, the humiliation of crucifixion did not end at the cross. The humiliation would continue. As oftentimes in the Roman Empire, the Romans would leave the bodies on the cross until those bodies rotted off or were eaten by birds of prey. If they took the body down, they would throw it into a garbage dump. And these religious leaders at this time in Jerusalem, they don't want the bodies on the cross for the Passover and on the Sabbath. So Jesus' body would have been removed and thrown into the Gehenna Valley in the dump of Jerusalem where they burned the trash. And then the dogs and the jackals would come and feed off of what was there. That's what the possibility is here. We know that, remember in the book of Acts, that in chapter 14 of Acts, that Paul, the apostle, he was stoned in Lystra and left for dead. And it says he was dragged out of the city and left for dead. Why was he dragged out of the city? He was thrown in a garbage heap. He was left for dead there. And he resurrected and he came back into Lystra. And it's, it's an amazing account of Paul's you know, ministry there in his first missionary journey. So that is what they are facing here and what we don't think about. There is no Peter. Peter who said, Lord, I'll never leave you. You can count on me. He wasn't there. None of the disciples have gone to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. Mary is with John. They have left. 
James and Jude, the brothers of Jesus, or that is the half-brothers of Jesus, they don't ask for the body for their brother to give him a proper burial. Jude and James, who writes those epistles that you have in the New Testament, they didn't become believers until after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we know that when Jesus was up in the Galilee, that Mary and his brothers came asking for him, but they're not around at this time asking for the body of Jesus. So Jesus' body is facing being thrown into the garbage heap in Jerusalem, but God in his word had said that he would be buried according to the scriptures. And out of the shadow comes this man who perhaps none of Jesus' family knew. None of the disciples knew. None of the women who are watching from afar knew. Joseph told to us in all four Gospels. Luke tells us that he was a good man and a just man. He did not consent to the council's decision indeed. Luke telling us that he's a member of the council. Mark tells us that he's a prominent council member. In other words, that he had great influence in the council. He was a voice that they would listen to until this time when they condemned Jesus. Remember at the trial that Caiaphas, that he cries out, you've heard him say that he's the son of God. He should be condemned to death. And they began to beat him. So they didn't listen to Joseph, who did not give consent to that or to the deed that they were doing in beating Jesus. And then you have, you have Nicodemus. Nicodemus, I mentioned him, who came to Jesus, a Pharisee, that he's a member of the council as well. And he's the one that came to Jesus at night in John chapter 3. Jesus calls him the master teacher of Israel. He had dedicated his life to teaching of the law, the ceremonial and moral law, of the feast, of the sacrifices. He was dedicated to teaching the most minute details of the law, the interpretation of the law. And that's why when he hears Jesus say, you must be born again if you want to see the kingdom of God. He's thinking that you got to keep the law. Jesus says, you got to be born again. What do you mean? What do you mean? Can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? Help me. It's like Nicodemus. Help me understand this. And now he's understanding this. The master teacher of Israel. These men would have great status in the nation. They have prominent positions. They have impeccable reputations. Now John tells us that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, just as Matthew does. But John says, secretly for fear of the Jews. That's in John chapter 19, verse 38. Joseph is a wealthy man, according to the Gospels. He's going to have a tomb carved out of the rocks in Jerusalem. He is not going to be buried in his place of ancestry in Arimathea. That it would be customary to do that. He is making his own tomb that is carved out of the side of the mountain. There at Golgotha. At Mount Moriah, the top of it, where they would carve into the mountain and they were actually making the stones up at that place with Solomon's quarries, where they made the stones for the temple. And then on the side of the mountain where they cut into it was a 
image of a skull that was there, and they called it Golgotha, the place of the skull. And we also know from the Gospels that nearby where Jesus was crucified that there was a garden, and that's where Joseph's tomb was. So he carves his tomb out of the rocks on the side of the mountain at a very, very high expense. It is new. In other words, no one had laid in it. And to have workers come with hammers and chisels, they got no blasting caps, and to carve out this tomb that was large enough to where you have a body and probably there was a mourning area. If you go to the garden tomb today, that as you go into it, there is a little mourning area and then there is the place where there was enough for a couple bodies to be laid. It had never been used and it would come as they would carve it out, this tomb large enough to have all of this and then in the front of the tomb in the entrance there's a trough that is there that they would have a large stone that they would be able to roll and they would roll that large stone at the entrance to close the tomb or if they wanted to open the tomb and that's what the ladies these women that are watching Jesus be buried, that they are going to come on the first day of the week, as we will see next week, and they want to finish the process of applying the burial spices on, on Jesus to have the tomb open. All of that would come at a cost that is unimaginable. And Joseph and Nicodemus, no doubt, have been talking, realizing that this Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Messiah that the prophets had written about that they had been waiting for, and both of these leaders step out of the secrecy of their belief into the open, and they would go to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. In Mark's gospel, it tells us that they had to take courage. They taking courage would go. Joseph went to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. It took a lot of courage for Joseph to do that, to go to Pilate. He would come and Pilate would say, well, are you a relative? No, I'm not. Are you one of those disciples? No, you're one of those religious leaders. Those religious leaders that were here earlier in the day accusing Jesus. They had to come with envy and jealousy and hurling all the accusations and getting the people all worked up so that they cried out, crucify him. It took Joseph a lot of courage to say, yeah, but I'm here. I'm here to ask for the body of Jesus. It took courage for Joseph and Nicodemus to come out for all to know that they are now believers of this Jesus who died on that cross because it would come at a great cost for them to do this. They would be cut off from everything when they saw what Jesus did for them that he was lifted up for their sins. They said, we're going to go to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. And they would go encouraged to go to Pilate, even though they would be cut off from their positions, they would be cut off from their families, they would lose their wealth, probably cut off from their inheritance. Inheritance was everything in ancient Israel. They would be cut off from their status. Tradition says that Nicodemus also was wealthy. Tradition says he was one of the three wealthiest men of Israel. There's one source that says that his daughter had the most opulent wedding that Jerusalem had ever seen. And then the source goes on to say that she was found gathering barley from the floor of a stable not many years from this time because Nicodemus had associated himself now with the Christians. Tradition says that Peter and John baptized Nicodemus. 
There is evidence that Joseph here would be sent to the area of Britain, sent by Philip to Glassenburg in Somersetshire. The chapel of Joseph of Arimathea is there. And these men dare to ask Pilate for the body of Jesus as they come out officially to own Christ as their own Savior. We read that Pilate marveled to hear that Jesus was already dead. It had only been six hours. Usually crucified victims would, would last for, for hours, even days on the cross. But here it's coming the Sabbath. It's coming Passover. So they would hasten up the death of those crucified victims because it was death by suffocation. And you had to push up on that nail in your feet to get a breath of air, a very slow process as the air is being squeezed out of your body. So they would come, and the gospel said that the two thieves, they broke their legs. They did that so they couldn't push up, and it would hasten their death. When they came to Jesus, he was already dead. And as he hears that, we know that one of the Roman soldiers takes a spear and thrusts it up through the chest cavity of Jesus. And it tells us when they pulled it out, that out came the blood that was mixed with water, which medical examiners will tell you was uh, indicative of a a ruptured heart, his heart ruptured. So he was indeed dead. So it's confirmed, (coughs) excuse me, And when it is, Pilate grants the body to Joseph. It is late in the day. And burial preparations need to happen quickly before the sun sets and the Sabbath begins. So Joseph brings the fine linens back to Calvary. Nicodemus brings the burial spices. About 100 pounds is what John tells us. And Jesus, from the time of Judas' kiss of betrayal in the garden to the time where he takes his last breath, had the hands of anger and hatred and malice that beat him. Those hands that punched him. Those hands that pulled out his beard. The hands that were on the handle of that cat of nine tails that laid it on the back of Jesus and the scourging and ripped off his skin. The hands that had the club that, as they made the crown of thorns and pounded it on his scalp. The hands on the hammer that that would nail his hands to that cross and his feet to that cross. Those hands that brutally would cause such suffering for Jesus in ways that we can't fully understand is now going to be handled with loving hands from these two men who will take care of the body of Jesus for burial according to the scriptures. Peter said on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 that Jesus being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, it was all foreordained that these two men would be used to put Jesus in the tomb. Now Joseph brings the linen and no spices. Nicodemus brings the spices and no linens. Obviously they had talked. Obviously there was a plan. And when they come back to Calvary, it tells us that Joseph body Joseph would actually take the body of Jesus down from the cross. Mark writes the same thing. Did they lay the cross down to where he could take the nails out of his hands and feet? Or did Joseph have to climb up? The indication is that Joseph had to climb up and take the body of Jesus down. And they would be covered with his blood, which means they are now ceremonially unclean. They would wash the body of Jesus, the tahora, 
the washing of the body, the women can, would continue to be at a distance. They could not be present close by when this process was being done. Was it being done in the morning area, right at the entrance of the tomb? We don't know for sure. But it would be done very carefully. It would be done very discreetly. It would have to be done very quickly. They would work and wrap the body of Jesus in linen, the burial clothes, in a linen sh shroud, the tokohim. And these men would take care of this process. They would anoint the body with the burial spices. And it's interesting that John tells us it was a mixture of myrrh and spices. It reminds me of what we talked about just a little over a month ago, the Christmas story. In Luke chapter 2, it's also recorded uh, the events of Jesus' birth in Matthew's gospel as well, in chapter 1. But we do know that just as Jesus was born, there was another Joseph 33 years earlier that took the babe of Bethlehem, the body of Jesus, and wrapped him in swaddling linen clothes. It would be later that the wise men came, bring in gifts, and one of those gifts was myrrh. And as Jesus was placed in the manger, it was a stone manger. You see, when you go to Israel today, you see those mangers that are 2,000 years old. They, they were made of stone. They were carved out of the stone, and they were feeding troughs. The first Joseph places the babe of Jesus in a stone manger, and now this Joseph places the body of Jesus in a stone tomb. Kind of interesting. Interesting that he would be put in linen. Linen clothes, and a cloth, and a shroud. In Leviticus chapter 16, we're told that the material the high priest would wear on each day, each year, on the Day of Atonement, that he would wear linen clothes. Not, none of the beautiful robes and garments with the breastplate and the miter on his head. He would have to take that all off on the Day of Atonement. And he just wore linen like all the other priests, exactly like every other priest wore. The linen clothes... And then the high priest would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat between the two cherubim there in the Holy of Holies, two angels, where the blood was sprinkled, where the glory of God was tangible. In that tomb, this tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, as we will see the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the gospel writers tell us that there were two angels on either side where Jesus lay. Two angels, the picture of the mercy seat. And the high priest stripping down to his linen garments, and he would begin to minister in a very special way. As we read here this morning in verse 60, it tells us that Jesus was laid in a new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. Luke confirms it, tells us that it was a tomb that had never been used. That's very important to note. And then in verse 61, Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. We were told from the gospel accounts that, listen, they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. That's an important note. They observed the tomb and Jesus' body being placed in the tomb, and the stone then is rolled in closing the entrance to that tomb. They are eyewitnesses of his burial. Just as there was eyewitnesses of his crucifixion, there's eyewitnesses of his resurrection, there are eyewitnesses of his burial, and then they would leave that tomb. And the reason that I point that out, because as we finish next week, we're going to see that the religious leaders are going to go to Pilate and say, hey, we want a guard. 
we want to guard at that tomb because he said he would rise in three days. And if his body is gone, then that's going to be worse than anything else. So Pilate said, you make that tomb as secure as you can. So they made a seal over the, 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 the stone that closed the entrance, and they set a guard, which is 12 to 16 Roman soldiers, 24-7, watching that tomb. Now, over you know, the course of church history and during the time of Jesus' resurrection, there have been those who have come along to try to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then our, our faith is futile, as Paul would say. So one of the theories that they come up with is the wrong tomb theory, that the disciples went to the wrong tomb. Well... Did the women go to the wrong tomb who were eyewitnesses of the tomb that he was laid in on the first day of the week? Did the soldiers go to the wrong tomb? Did the angel go to the wrong tomb, declare that he's not here, he is risen? No. That the wrong tomb theory does not hold any weight or credibility whatsoever. Actually, Matthew and the Gospels dismiss it. And they would see where he was placed and they would leave, and Luke says, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Now you and I can rest. Because Jesus cried out, it is finished. And you know the story. He only borrows Joseph's tomb for three days. And these guys were secret disciples until they saw what he did. They saw him on that cross, Christ crucified. And now they go on record as saying, we don't care. We don't care if we lose our prominent positions in the council and in the nation. We are going to ask for the body of Jesus. Listen. The way to help people come out into the open about their faith, when you talk to them, to your kids, to your family, to others in your life, those that you minister to, we don't make them feel guilty. We don't manipulate their emotions or make them feel bad, but simply help them to understand this clearly, what Jesus did for them by going to the cross. There are people today that don't want to embrace Christ crucified. I think there's even some churches. You know, they want it to be focused on and priority is you know, a light show or media presentations and all of this. I'm not saying media is bad and some of those things, but here's the thing. We're not going to talk about sin. Let's not talk about repentance and let's not talk about Christ crucified. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He was crucified for me. And he has saved me. And that's why Paul would write, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God for salvation for all who believe. And I hope for all of us and as a church that we would be committed because Jesus died for us and has given us a living hope that we would declare to the world Christ crucified. No one can stay a secret disciple forever. And as you proclaim yourself as a believer, it will come at a cost in some way to some degree. But this morning, as we read this, we can thank Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus because they show us 
that we too can be courageous and bold in the days in which we are living in to touch lives for Jesus because he is the only hope that anyone has to come to the cross and to believe too and accept and surrender to him as Lord and Savior. You died for my sins. You rose from the grave. And now eternal life and forgiveness of sin and relationship with the Father is possible. Amen? Don't hide your faith. Don't hide your faith. You let people know what Jesus did for them as he gives you opportunity and that he's alive and rose from the grave. And Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for this short account of the burial of Jesus, which is so important that we know that he was crucified, died on that cross, he was buried, put into a tomb, and he rose again after three days. So I thank you that we can come this morning and, and look at this account, that he was buried according to the scriptures, but next week we will see he rose again after three days according to the scripture to give us a living hope. Jesus is the way. He's not a way. He's the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He conquered sin and death by rising from the grave, validating that he died for our sins, and it is finished. And we rejoice in that this morning. I do pray if there's anyone listening or later on the radio or you're here in this place or in a coffee shop that you've never made a commitment to Christ, come to him. Believe in him. The invitation is always to come, to repent, turn to Jesus. He loves you so much. That's why he died for you. And ask for forgiveness and surrender your heart and life to him. He says, come. And as you pray sincerely in your heart, you can do that right now. Today is the day of salvation. You can pray, Jesus, I come and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me and you're alive. And I ask that you would sit on the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. And I want to, I want to let it be known, Christ crucified, and what you've done for me. And I thank you for this new beginning to know you and enjoy you and walk with you all the days of my life. I thank you for saving me in Jesus' name. Father, for all of us as we go out of this place, that, Lord, that we would be a light, a proclaimer of truth and of hope as we tell the world that Jesus is alive, the greatest nude in the history, history of mankind, that there is hope for our sinful state. Christ crucified, hope for eternal life, he rose from the grave. I pray that we would have the courage these days to live for you. Father, I pray you bless everyone here as we go our way. And Lord, again, I just want to pray for those who are sick or hurting, that we would look to you for the healing we need, for the comfort we need, for the provision that we need in every way. Pray you bless everyone here as we go our way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you please stand?